nine years in, you burn out. So I started to put some limits on people and uh, three people actually attempted suicide in the one week. What irony that you're teaching your students how not to burn out. It was really quite embarrassing. Here's this person who's supposed to be the um, expert in the area who's having to take some time out and go to counselling himself. But it was actually a profound experience yes, for I'm me. sure. Hello and welcome to the Mentoring Series, conversations with a man of great experience and wisdom in this space, Keith Farmer. I'm Lee Hatcher and I'll be guiding us through our conversations. Keith, a very warm welcome. Thanks, Lee. Great to meet you. What is mentoring, Keith? It's somebody who's a little bit further along the pathway of life, discipleship, maturity, coming alongside a person in order to support them, encourage them, and sometimes guide them in who they are for what they do in life. Let's look at the rationale for where we'll be heading over these sessions. Who's it for, Keith? And what would be your hope for them at the end of our conversations about mentoring? I actually think what I want to share with you today is for every person, because as a Christian, I know that I'm biased, but I actually believe that what I'm going to talk about in terms of a 360-degree approach to living life is for every person. But it's also, in particular, for every disciple. And I believe it's for every leader. So it's a kind of a inside-out model that starts with general principles about life but takes discipleship very seriously and then sees leadership as mature discipleship. So I would hope that maybe it's leaders who would initially access what we're talking about, particularly with respect to whether they think mentoring would be a good idea for them or that they could become a mentor but actually it's for people in the local church who want to become intimate, organic disciples of Christ. But I would like to think that the principles of Jesus are actually for every person. Yeah. We'd like to get to know you. Give us a sketch of your wisdom, experience and uh, qualifications, Keith. Where have you been? Where have you come from? Okay. Uh, I was born in Melbourne, um, Lived there with my mum and dad and my twin brother. We ran free as kids. <laughs> um, my dad was a fibrous pastor, worked really hard for not a lot of money. Um, mum and dad were very keen Christians, um, had the incredible privilege of being in a loving home. Uh, not a lot of money, but very well looked after, cared for, loved. When my brother and I matriculated from Oakley High School. Our whole family moved to uh, Brisbane. Uh, we did that because my dad was a lay preacher and he heard that there was more opportunity in Brisbane than Melbourne. So that'll show how keen uh, mum and dad were as Christians. They, they loved God and they loved us. 
in Brisbane, I worked initially in, uh, in accountancy with Cooper Brothers. I had a, a, a crisis of faith about that time. It was almost as if I had to find my own faith. It, it was partly a, a disillusionment in some areas of intellect or logic about God. I'd, I'd read and felt very strongly, how can you have a God who's all-powerful and who loves us in a world like we experience at the moment? The pain, it didn't make sense to me. We were really fortunate. Um, the church that our family related to, and I was, I, I didn't have enough courage to let my parents know some of my doubts, so I was still attending church, but I would have been quite clearly agnostic. I was an atheist, but I, I couldn't find a God who made sense to me. How revealing. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a, there was a young pastor that came to our church, actually a guy by the name of Hayden Sargent, who actually became a, a media personality yes. in Queensland of some real note. Um, he did that after he was sacked by the church because there were too many drug addicts hanging around the church. But um, he was running a business on the side and he asked me, because he knew I was in accountancy, would I, uh, would I help him with the book? So I did and I liked the guy and I thought, I'm going to tell him I'm struggling. So he helped me through uh, Good News for Modern Man, a modern translation, back to a faith that focused on Jesus. He, he said to me, if you read, say, Mark's Gospel in the Good News for Modern Man, ask, ask yourself the question, who is this guy, Jesus? So I did that and I was amazed because I'm not particularly able in literary areas and the authorised version never worked for me. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Did Jesus actually say that or do that? And I came away with two key impressions. One was, I don't actually know who he was, but I like him. Yes. This is a person who's either crazy or he's got some insight into human nature and wisdom that I need to take some notice of. Which led you eventually into ministry yourself. Well, I, I decided to give it a go again um, on the basis that um, and I, I, in my quest, I, I read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, where he says... Um, Whatever you do in your approach to Christianity, you can't say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher because he said that he was the son of God. So either he was who he said he was or he was a liar and a lunatic yes. and on the level of a poached egg. That's right. And I thought, oh my goodness, I was going down the track of, I think he's a pretty good moral teacher. So I, I actually, I'm going to give this another go. Within about two months, and I was just about to graduate with my commerce degree, within about two months, I felt a call to actually train for ministry. I actually now realise that that was partly because I wanted to be like Hayden Sargent, 
but I'll never be like Hayden Sargent. Um, he was witty, quick thinking, the life of the party. I'm introverted. I'm slow thinking. Uh, so anyway, I, there was no, I'm part of Churches of Christ, which is a mainstream um, Protestant denomination, very similar to the Baptist Church. So uh, we had a college in Sydney training, so I just went to the nearest Church of Christ college and did the four-year training there. After two years, I felt that the training in theology and history was really good, but we had no no training in practical areas of ministry, nothing about either pastoral care or management, none. So I took myself off to University of New South Wales and did an honours degree in psychology to try and find my way through the relational part. And I've always been a student of human nature. Um, I married in my final year at college, um, a lady whom I met while I was in college. And um, Margaret tells me to this day that when we started getting serious, I promised her that I wasn't going to be a pastor. <laughs> anyway, that if, if I did, I broke that promise. She's not upset about that, but she does tell me. Um, so I was a student pastor at a place called Canley Heights in Sydney, in the western suburbs, um, housing in those areas, housing commission. Um, what I really loved was the youth work. I, I used to be the youth leader there Friday nights. It was a bit of a rugged scene. That didn't worry me at all. Um, so I, I took, after I graduated, I took a term of ministry at Canley Heights. And then after three years there, and I'd finished my honours degree, I was invited to Epping Church of Christ. I was there for eight years. And um, during that time, uh, my wife and I had had one child when we were at Canley Heights and then we had twins um, in our first year of ministry at Epping. I was actually enrolled to do a PhD in psychology at Macquarie Uni or I had, I actually wasn't enrolled. I'd lined up a supervisor and a topic and we had twins and that put the end to anything <laughs> like doing anything extra. Anyway, I was at um, Epping Church of Christ for eight years and towards the end of that, I began a Doctor of Ministry through Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, and then I was invited to uh, a joint ministry in Melbourne, which was half-time uh, as Associate Pastor at Doncaster Church of Christ and half-time lecturer in practical ministry and pastoral areas at the... National College of Churches of Christ in Melbourne. Uh, I, our children were quite young at that time. I thought that that would be a fairly significant longer term. Anyway, after two years of that, I received a very... Um, I received a phone call that was very surprising and it was from the secretary of the board of the college I'd trained at and it was to invite me to be principal of that college. The previous principal had died suddenly of cancer. And uh, 
I, I was so surprised that I rang the person back 10 minutes later and said, did you just call me? I thought somebody must have been joking. <laughs> because you describe yourself as a redeemed rat bag. Yeah. And uh, now principal. And, and not a... Go figure. Not, not an academic person in terms of orientation. I'd, I'd just finished my Doctor of Ministry, but that's a professional degree. That's not an academic degree. And I saw myself, you know, partly teaching because I love teaching and preaching, but I wanted to be in local church ministry. But I thought, and I talked to the previous principal, the person who had been principal when I was in college, um, and he said, look, um, if you feel that there were any dilemmas in your training, now's your chance. Anyway, cut a long story short, I thought that might be a five or six or seven year to change the curriculum to be more practical and more eclectic. Um, 24 years later, Mm. um, I retired from that role and we had transitioned the college to be a decentralised training. When I went there, it was a campus-based model at at Carlingford in Sydney and uh, people came from wherever. Um, A lot lived on the property. I'm interested in this. Nine years in, you burn out. What irony that you're teaching your students in the context of pastoral ministry how not to burn out. Why did that happen, Keith? What happened there? Well, it was, it was really quite embarrassing um, because I, I was teaching in the area of pastoral care yes. at tertiary level and I was also doing quite a, a, a lot of counselling, both in the local church and through the college contact. And uh, I allowed too many people to become codependent on me, which is not a good idea if you're a a counsellor. And I started to run out of resources. So I started to put some limits on people and uh, they responded negatively to that so that three people actually attempted suicide in the one week. And I therefore needed to take a break and I got some professional help myself, which was, again, let me say, not only embarrassing because I was teaching in the area of pastoral care, but I was by that time, I can't remember the exact moment, but I became a registered psychologist. So here's this person who's supposed to be the um, expert in the area who's having to take some time on and go to counselling himself. But it was actually a profound experience yes, for Yes, I'm me. sure, which uniquely qualifies you for these conversations, in my view. Can anyone be a mentor? I think there's a potential for anybody to be a mentor, but the key qualifications for mentoring are maturity and life experience and empathy and caring. And if you're mentoring, as I do, Christian leaders, experience as a Christian leader so that you can actually put yourself in the place of the person. That doesn't mean you have done exactly what they are doing, but you understand the pressures of leadership and therefore can empathise with people, whatever their ministry is. The first couple who ever asked me whether I would mentor them, I said no, Mm -hmm. because I knew 
what their ministry was and I could never have done their ministry. So they asked me why and I said, well, I couldn't do what you do and and the person said to me, we're not looking for a coach, we're no, looking for a mentor. No. We have a coach. And I said, so what do you mean you're looking for a mentor? Somebody for who I am rather than initially what I do. So that's what mentoring is. It, it helps the person in who they are for whatever their life and their discipleship and their ministry It's a really is. important distinction. Should every leader and pastor have a mentor? I'm biased. Yes. <laughs> Very biased. But I actually think yes, but not so much a mentor, but the whole concept of mentoring. Some people could have several mentors, but the idea that we are not alone, because most Christian leaders actually feel very lonely. It's a lonely place. And there's a temptation sometimes because of uh, competitiveness to be fairly isolated as well. Um, So... I would love to think that it's a resource that people who have the key qualifications are available to help those who are not, maybe younger, not as experienced, those who actually haven't walked the walk as as much, that there's a collegial alongsideness that is par for the course. Yeah. You'll find this an uncomfortable question, but what's in it for you? What has it given you, your passion for mentoring, Keith? For me, it's what I call convergence. Um, I I began mentoring 16 and a half years ago after I had retired from the college. I was 63 years old at the time, and I was expecting just to slope off. I'd taken a part-time local church ministry. That's how... I thought I could just ride off into the sunset. And then people started asking me. And uh, eventually I needed to forego that local church ministry because mentoring is to some extent itinerant and local church ministry, you need to be there every week or weekend. Um, So mentoring for me brought the pastoral side of who I am to the fore. My, I, I become a registered psychologist, so, and I'm not in any way saying that a mentor needs to be a psychologist, but it was helpful to me in the, in the pastoral area. I, um, I have had for a long time through my training, the, the, and also my time as the principal of the college, a passion for the health and well-being of Christian leaders to help them to finish well, to stay healthy and to enjoy life and ministry. So mentoring gave me just that opportunity. When I started mentoring, I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> um, I uh, That couple I mentioned, I said to them, look, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'll do. Let's do it three times and you can say thanks but no thanks or I can say I don't think this is for me. At the end of those three times, the lady, um, and this was a, a Pentecostal church, husband and wife, and she said to me, Keith, what you do isn't rocket science. Now, 
I didn't actually know what I was doing, but <laughs> I was asking questions that I thought were relevant. She said, the questions you're asking us, we need somebody to ask us on a regular basis. So we'd like to continue. And we have three other couples who we've talked to about what you're doing with us and they'd like you to do it for them too. Yeah. The question's coming from a pastoral heart though, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Yes, they are. So just as an overview for now, because we'll delve into this in more depth, talk to me about the character and the characteristics of what will make a good mentor. Okay. A pastoral heart, um, a, an experience of life that allows you to be alongside a person rather than um, a supervisor or a superior, just somebody who can empathise and get a relationship which you value incredibly because the person is, um, it's a sacred space in a sense because if mentoring is as it can be, people are sharing their heart. They're sharing intimate and important areas of their lives. So it has to be safe. You have to be um, tight in terms of confidentiality, but that actually allows you into a, a very privileged and a very, very um, uh, important and actually a very influential space, but it's not front and centre. The best mentors are behind the scenes and you don't actually want your mentoring to be known other than people can say, um, Keith mentors me, that's fine if they're comfortable with it. But mostly if somebody knows you're mentoring, something's gone wrong. So you, you actually, mentoring is in the background. So you need to be a person who's pretty okay in your own skin yeah. because you won't be on the platform. You won't be very often the center. You will be helping other people to be in the center. And it, I made a statement about a month ago that surprised me after I made it because somebody was asking me some questions. But my role as principal of the college for 24 years, that was, that, that was tough and, and, but it had quite a bit of influence attached with it. I reckon my 16 years as a mentor have been more effective from an influence point of view than my role in the, in, in the college. That's how highly I regard the capacity from a mentor just to support somebody in both good and in bad times. And the humility of a mentor. Well, a mentor needs to recognise that um, there, but for the grace of God, go I in every situation. I I think you picked up on one occasion that I see myself as a redeemed ratbag. <laughs> if you knew the kind of young person I was and I can't believe how wild we ran as kids. It's the power of God, Keith. <laughs> it's the power of God to transform. Wow, yes. So I live every moment of every day recognising that I need, I need a... Uh, start again, a redeem, a redemption. Uh, I need to be thankful rather than grumpy, whatever, whatever. So 
a part of being a, a, a mentor is to be alongside, not not to see yourself as in any way supervising the person. No. So in this conversation, to give an overview of where we're heading, I'd like to talk about the context of mentoring, where our leaders and pastors are and the kind of world in which they dwell. How do you think they're travelling at the moment, Keith? By and large, not well, unfortunately. And I say that with a not only a very heavy heart, but with a, a sense of... Um, we've got to do something about this because by and large leaders, and I'm, I, I have the privilege and have had the privilege of mentoring across a wide range of Christian leaders. Um, as I've mentioned, I was brought up in a, in a fairly small, fairly um, isolated um, evangelical Protestant denomination. Now... I mentor about nearly 50% of the people I mentor are Pentecostal pastors. Um, I don't know how or why that happened, but I mentor from still people who are doing training. I mentor some theological students. I mentor people who are parts of teams. But I've also had the opportunity over the years to mentor quite a number of the pastors of mega churches. So with all that experience, why aren't they travelling so well in today's world, in today's church? The pressures of leading particularly a local church, but any Christian ministry in Australia today are so relentless that over a period of time, unless you have very good strategies and very good resources and help, you will gradually run out of steam or become emotionally depleted or burn out. And that that applies right across the board, no matter what kind of denomination or network you're in, what size of church you're ministering in, the relentless nature of being a local church leader in Australia over the last 15 years at least, and more so than ever today, leads the best people to potentially run out of steam. So here's the question. Why is it so relentless? Why has it become so relentless, as you say, over the last 15 years? And I ask that having seen churches, ministers, friends in ministry go through this. Why has it changed, Keith? There's a lot of factors. There's no one major factor. It's the perfect storm, almost. Um, For instance... um, in terms of emotional depletion, there are many, many parts of being a local church pastor that are emotionally draining in and of them. For instance, pastoral work is yep. emotionally draining. Preaching is incredibly emotionally draining. I was trained uh, in what's generally called the pastor-teacher model of being a minister or a clergy person. And uh, that suited me beautifully. Um, the pastor-teacher model is where you um, you go visiting in the morning, the people in your church or anybody who's sick or whatever, um, or in the afternoon. Half the day is 
is pastoring and half the day is preparing your sermons and preparing Bible studies and whatever. That's what I was trained to do. I was in my second ministry when I went to a church growth seminar by a guy from America called Winan and I went with some of my elders from Epping Church of Christ and he talked about me being a leader. And I said to my elders, do you see me as a leader? Am I a leader? They said, absolutely. That was the first time, and I'm eight or nine years, ten years into being a pastor at this stage, and I'm asking my elders, am I a leader? And I actually believe that my training was deficient in the sense that anybody who's a pastor is a leader automatically. Yes. So you need to actually recognize that, be um, trained and skilled to express that effectively. To me, it was a big wake-up call to say, if you are in a pastoral ministry role, you are a leader, so you actually need to recognize that this is a position of influence, and it's not only what you say, but what you do and who you are that are probably going to be at least as much of an influence as whatever you preach in your sermon. And we'll rip through some of the characteristics of what you call is the perfect storm of emotional exhaustion in just a minute. My take on it, my observation, is that this is happening at every level of leadership in pastoral ministry. Yes. And especially over the last couple of years, couple of decades, We've seen some of the big dogs of Christian ministry, their their great downfall and demise. Yes. And I feel personally um, a great, well, I was going to say a great weight, but I certainly feel a weight that I, I had the privilege for 24 years to actually train people for ministry and... I have come to believe very, very deeply that character development and Christian character is easily the most important qualification for leadership in any Christian context. Now, I'm not in any way undervaluing or underestimating how important uh, knowledge, biblical knowledge, historical knowledge the capacity to understand and express scripture accurately is incredibly important. I'm not underestimating uh, how important giftedness is so that, for instance, the capacity to communicate effectively. We received some training in that in college and that was probably only practical training that we received. Thankfully, we did have training in preaching or in uh, communication. That's very, very important. But it's not actually the main game. One of the things I've come to um, recognise is very important is that there are many good things in life, but if you elevate them to being the main thing, they're, they're actually not up to it. And that would be true for me in terms of uh, Christian leadership with respect to either knowledge 
and or giftedness. They are very important, particularly scriptural knowledge and, and I'm evangelical so I, I, I have that approach to scripture um, but actually the main thing is that the nature of God is being reproduced in us so that we live life to the full, so that we live life the way we are created to live. That doesn't mean that we're anywhere near perfect. It actually means that we're closer to having to repent many times every day because we recognise that we fall short. Is one of the challenges for a leader minister this, that that is about what's happening inside when we focus so much now on what people can see. Yes, and I think we're paying a heavy price in our society and uh, Western society and possibly worldwide for the fact that Christian leaders across the board have been developed in giftedness and in knowledge but actually their maturity, their level of competence to handle life and particularly areas of pressure and stress is not at a mature level so that when they come under, when we come under, when I come under pressure, actually we are not wise often in the way we approach those areas so that um, and there's a there's a passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and I love the message translation. I mentioned that I'm not particularly able in literary areas, but um, Eugene Peterson is, and he gives me a wonderful gift in his capacity to express language. And he basically says, or translates, or paraphrases part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's um, it's who preachers are, not what they say that is the most important thing. Gold. That's it. Hi, I'm Peter Mayrick from Partners in Ministry. Partners in Ministry wants to support and equip church leaders to better lead their churches in Christ's mission. And we want to see the Church of Christ grow through effective ministry, which produces disciples who make other disciples. We do this through providing one-to-one support for church leaders and by providing tools and training for church leaders which are focused on achieving effectiveness in church ministry and leadership. We would love to work with you, we'd love to meet you, and we'd love to support you in your ministry. If you're interested in taking up our offer, please contact us through info at partnersinministry.com or through our website and we'll follow up with you. Thanks so much. So to your perfect storm, the perfect storm for emotional exhaustion. I want, as I said, rip through a whole series of bullet points that you identify their important aspects of this perfect storm. Can I start with this? Ministry is relationship intense, though often enjoyable. Yes, so um, the perfect storm, the reason why I put though often enjoyable is that... um, the perfect storm for emotional depletion can include lots of things that you actually enjoy doing and that you are good at. That still does not um, buffer you against the fact that you're giving out all the time. And 
the uh, the essence of ministry is relationship, relationship with God, but then relationship with those closest to you. You probably are aware that the uh, Timothy and Titus picture of the leader or the elder as expressed in quite a number of the passages um, is what's an inside-out picture that says um, it's who you are at home and then in the church and then in in the community that really matters and it's about the relationship quality that you have in each of those um, gradually outward-looking parts so that the uh, ministry is about relating well uh, with God, with self, with family, with congregation, with the community. Point number two, ministry is re- regularly at the extremities of life. If we are pastors, and I believe that every Christian leader needs to have a pastoral heart, now that doesn't mean that pastoral work is your major area. Um, for instance, when I was at the college, I have a pastoral heart, but I had other people to do the pastoral care. Um, so it doesn't mean that you have to spend most of your day in pastoral work. But any pastor will be semi-regularly at the very least called on in the extremities of life. Now, some of those are very happy, like birth. And I've once or twice had the embarrassing situation of actually getting to the hospital before the husband or whatever. (laughs) And on one occasion ended up in the birthing suite before the the husband got there. And I was a little bit embarrassed about that. And I think she was as well. But actually, um, that's a very emotionally draining situation. Birth and death. And death. And, And then sickness and death. So that, for instance, um, I found when I was in local church pastoral ministry, uh, anything to do with a pastoral issue with children just basically undid me. I I don't understand to this day why that's true, but I found myself visiting somebody in a children's ward and just having the tear, thinking, this person, why, how? How come? How long, O oh Lord? Yeah. yeah. If you are to be a pastor, you have to have the resources inside to give in those kinds of situations and they are very draining. Next one, a big one. Ministry is unboarded. Mm. You're on 24-7. Yes. And it's almost impossible to say how big or profound this one is in actual fact. I... I visited my my doctor just to get my flu injection recently and he was talking about the previous evening and that he was on call. And if you can imagine, say, a doctor in a practice going home, and it's a large practice, going home and he's not on call compared with going home and he's on call and he talked about being called out two or three times during the night, Imagine a vocation where every night when you go home, that could happen to you. And people get loadings on their 
salaries when you have that extra pressure that says you can't fully relax. For instance, you know, make sure you limit your alcohol because you may have to drive, you may have to go into some situation that's quite demanding of your faculties or whatever. Imagine a lifetime with that kind of context in your background and it's an absolute privilege but you do get called out sometimes and actually you need times when your adrenaline is able just to settle down and if you're on on call you're probably only part of the way towards that. Another challenge, it's hard to discern progress you say in ministry from week to week, month to month, even year to year often. Yes. Um, One of the people who I've mentored for a long time now um, grew up in uh, Epping Church of Christ and I had the privilege of baptising him and he's now a pastor. And uh, he said to me on one occasion, and I, I was aware that he became a builder before he trained to be a pastor, he said to me, Keith, sometimes I go home to the Carlingford Epping area to visit my family because they still live in the area and I drive around the area and I park outside a particular building and I say to myself, I built that house. And he said, I get a sense of achievement and progress from that that's discernible and clear that I don't get in ministry. It's one step forward and maybe a half a step back or one and a half. You put your heart and soul into people's lives and sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not. Sometimes your KPIs go forward and sometimes the key performance indicators are negative. He said... I struggle, I got more positive feedback about what I was doing in my building than I did as a pastor of a church. And there's also, with your next point, the expectation that the minister or the leader will always be able to hold themselves together emotionally. Mm. What a pressure. Yes, an incredible pressure. Um, And if you don't, then it can come back and adversely affect your professional life and your your ongoing ministry. For instance, and just to go to an extreme, one of our uh, graduates from the college, in his first ministry, uh, I heard this um, roundabout, I didn't find out from him personally, but he, um, in, a, in a board meeting, he lost his cool and he ended up, standing up on the table, berating the board members. Well, that was the end of his ministry. If you can imagine a profession where um, maybe you might be forgiven for one time where you don't hold it together, but not much more than that. A profession like that and where there's a rule run over your family on a regular basis, um, there's a recognition. I, I remember in my second ministry, I, I was playing cricket um, for the church team and uh, 
I I thought my behaviour was okay. I was a, a bowler. <laughs> I thought I was holding it in okay, but one of the ladies of the church said to me on a Sunday following a Saturday game, I heard that you yelled at the umpire yesterday. And I thought, oh my goodness, I probably did. <laughs> That's right. I, Imagine having that kind of... Uh, I'm a I'm fast bowler and I'm playing cricket and I stepped outside what was expected of I've me. known ministry friends of mine who are fearsome on the sporting field. I think, my goodness, never seen that kind of well, side of you before. I actually, <laughs> I actually hide a little bit of my sporting earlier days because I'm, I'm not particularly proud of them, but actually... If people knew, say, the way I played Aussie Rules football, I think it would probably be a a black mark against (laughs) me. We'll forgive you. (laughs) Here's another interesting one I've never thought of, the challenge for the minister in this emotional storm. They've always got to be motivating and mobilising volunteers. There's a pressure in that. Very big. Um, As you and and others would be very aware, um, there's, there's courses to train people to work effectively with volunteers. Yes. And I actually think that even today, most pastors, most Christian leaders have not quite worked out how profoundly different working in a volunteer association such as the church, how different that is from a secular employment situation. And if you try and lead the way a person can in a secular situation, at some point it comes back to to bite you in lots of different ways. So that quite a bit of my mentoring is actually where leaders and leadership have accepted secular principles and contexts and they're good, but they're actually not the best. And almost elevated them to be the best. And at some point, um, there's almost a reckoning time because these people can walk away. These people can choose another church. These people can decide not to turn up on a weekday or on Sunday to be a volunteer. And unless you're actually willing to work, and you have to put a lot of guided energy and clearly targeted help towards motivating our volunteers or at some stage the volunteer um, capacity of the ministry or the church will need to be bolstered every six months in a way that says you're running out of steam. And I think those dynamics are part of the answer about why it's become so relentless over the last 15 years or so. Another one, especially today, the place of a minister or leader does not hold a place of honour or even respect in our society today. Yes, and that's particularly now because of abuse and um, the terrible things that we've become more aware have been happening for quite a long period of time. I can clearly remember when I graduated from my um, college course, and that's now um, 
four years ago that the Reader's Digest every year had a, um, a table of trust for the vocations. I think they still do it. I don't know. I, don't, do, yes. I haven't got the Reader's yeah. Digest for a long time. But there were two vocations that were either top and second top or very close. One was a medical doctor and the other was a minister of religion in trust. Now, you and I probably wouldn't want to know too clearly some of the vocations that are actually above minister of religion um, in the trust um, table for today. And that actually means that if I'm a pastor and somebody on a bus or a train or a plane asks me what I do, I actually wonder whether I'm going to end the conversation if I tell them my background because we are not regarded very highly at all. And most of us get some sense of who we are, some of our value from what we do in our vocation. Of course. And that's fair enough. It's a problem if we get most of our value from our vocation. Too right. But we need to feel good about contributing something in our vocation. So if you're a bit hesitant in the community to even let the person next to you know what you do because it'll end the conversation, that doesn't help in terms of travelling well. And that person you identify is under another pressure and that is of consumerism, how the church and Christian organisations have caught that bug as well today. That is an incredibly present and strong pressure on most pastors today. Now, not all. Um, There's a whole spectrum of what we might look at as the, um, the model of leadership that churches and denominations accept or is the general so that on one end of the spectrum would be the anointed leader model of the strongly Pentecostal church where um, theologically and practically there is a person or a couple who are God's anointed leaders and they have an incredible amount of both um, designated authority and actual on-the-ground authority. And you come right through a spectrum to the um, some mainline denominations where it's basically democracy that is seen as the way almost all decisions are made so that no matter whether it's the colour of the carpet in the church hall or whatever it is, the whole church has a vote and... The pastor is a pastor teacher. I believe they still are a leader and need to recognise that, but they are not given the opportunity to lead with any vision or any sense of forward or counterculture or whatever. So in that spectrum, there are different levels of, of, of pressure. And there's an incredible amount of pressure on the anointed leader 
and I could talk about that at some later stage, but there's also a lot of pressure on the person who feels a call to lead a church, but then is not allowed to do that. You're leading a whole bunch of consumers. You're, you're leading people who have, for whatever reason, and I think it's very complicated, we've moved to where what is regarded as the, um, the most effective way in which church is expressed today and and because it's working more effectively for Pentecostal churches, this would be within the Pentecostal realm, the anointed leader. Um, they often have, not always, but they often have what's called an events-driven model where the weekend is the most significant and probably or possibly has up to 80% of all resources that are allocated towards what happens on the weekend and particularly on a Sunday. And therefore the worship, including preaching and production, equipment, auditorium, everything has to be state of the art because we are competing with those down the road because if they do anything better than we do, particularly younger generations are potentially going to walk. And that becomes one of the major pressures on a Christian leader to actually perform very well at the top of the list in almost anything because if you are down the list in terms of any of the preaching, music, um, parking, um, auditorium, production, then people will go somewhere else. And that is one of the most discouraging factors that I've come across for pastors. And you identify in the next point, public speaking and preaching as emotionally draining. Yes. Even for the experienced. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm preaching again in about a week's time. And uh, I'm already a little bit nervous. Um, mm. And that that is amazing because I, I actually worked out, it's a very rough, very rough estimate, but I think I've preached about two and a half thousand times. And you still get and nervous. And I get nervous and I probably get more nervous than even before. But even even at any time, Mostly if I wear a coat when I'm preaching, I'm very, very warm, even if it's quite a cold day, because there's a lot of energy, intellectual, spiritual, emotional, physical energy actually goes into the preaching event. So that what I help leaders to recognise is that what you may be very able at, what you may be very experienced at, what you may enjoy incredibly doing, don't overlook the fact that that will take a lot out of you and that you will need some recovery time. You will need some time to actually allow the adrenaline to stop for a while so that you, you can recover. And in 
the case of church denominations and church structures, you identify a lack of really decent leadership governance paradigms that also bring their own emotional toll on the, the minister, the leader, the pastor. Yes. And let me say that leadership and governance are, are closely interrelated and there is an overlap in them, but they are actually quite different in their major thrust. And if I'm called to be a leader, then a very important part of my leadership is that there be effective governance and that the governance and the leadership actually integrate and interrelate in harmonious and empowering kind of ways. And my experience uh, across that spectrum, and it's a almost a multivariate spectrum, is, uh, and this is a generalisation that some churches would it wouldn't be fair for them. But at the Pentecostal end, there's often uh, a lack of good governance in that and it's not happening anywhere near as much as it used to, that the governance body of, say, a mega church were actually senior pastors of other mega churches. And that doesn't actually lead to... It might lead to effective leadership, but the governance... You know, the key policies, following through what's, what you have to do from, from a legislated point of view, making sure all the health and welfare things are right. Um, they need to be in place and there has been maybe a, on the other end of the spectrum, and this is what I experienced to some extent a little bit, um, in my first two churches, I would say those churches were board-led churches. Yes. And there's a lot of value in that. There's a safety in that that maybe isn't quite in the anointed leader model. But actually, if, if we are to go into visionary kind of leadership, if we're to be other than... Um, conservative and we're going to take some risks and if you're in ministry today we've got to take some risks yeah, yeah, we can't yeah. be conservative conservative doesn't work in the sense of doing what was done yeah. in the past if you're trying to do what was done in the past you are probably gradually dying and I'm not talking about key content of biblical same content the same basics but methodology so that if you have a board of people, male and female, from a, a, a varied walks of life, then that would be very valuable. But unless there's a, and can, say, can I say, a professional person who's immersed in ministry and church and whatever, who is listened to and understood about both the similarities and the differences of a church from a secular organisation, to have the leader speaking into that so that the key policies are actually well-founded but also progressive. So that to some extent I didn't realise I was a leader and then when I realised I was a leader, I was to some extent being held back 
by the governance part coming too much into the leadership part. Then you inject into that often pretty tight financial circumstances, mm. which the leader, the, the pastor, the minister will have to be managing. That's an enormous pressure often. Very, very great. And, and particularly with COVID, there are particular um, financial pressures. Uh, even coming out of COVID, I'm very aware that many pastors are anxious about the offerings. And, uh, you know, by and large, I'm really encouraged and happy to say that offerings have kept up during COVID and a lot of people have gone to online giving and whatever and it's worked reasonably well. Now that we're coming back, um, pastors are anxious about whether the offerings will stay up. But what's happened since, um, since I trained in recognising that we are leaders, we also have become institutional leaders and organisational leaders so that many of the pastors whom I'm alongside day by day, the effective financial situation of the church rises and falls on their capacity to keep the money and the budget effectively met. And if they are not actually effective or don't want to be involved in that, then they are seen to be deficient in one area of the plethora of leadership responsibilities and gifts that a pastor is seeming to need today. And how relentless does that get? Yes, relentless. Also, you have identified in the emotional equation this perfect storm, the sense of call that a leader or pastor might have, that prevents them from perhaps taking a break that they might need. Yes, and and let me say I, I very strongly value my own sense of call and people with whom I'm mentoring having a sense of call and that has a very positive role in terms of motivation and helping to sustain us when the going gets tough. But every now and then I find that the sense of call actually becomes counterproductive so that I feel that because I'm called to this um, vocation that I, nef- that I must stay in this role or I must do well in this particular role. And uh, I have a colleague whom I very strongly value, um, Tim Hanna, and I was listening to him last week in a presentation we did together and he made a distinction between role and call so that I have a calling to ministry but if I accept too definitively that I'm called to this church or to this particular ministry, it may actually hold me into that role longer than it's constructive for me and for the other people or it may discourage me from actually taking a sabbatical or a break from that role because I feel like as if I'm letting down my calling in some way or another. Or that God might change his call 
in time yeah. and in circumstances. Yes, because he's disappointed in me. Or, or not. He yeah. might just have different things for Exactly. You. Yeah. yeah. This is something that we're all vulnerable to in your list. Discouragement, a key vulnerability for a leader pastor. Mm. How's that different from anyone else, though? If a person's identity is wrapped up in their vocation, and most of us have it, at least to some extent, the season for church that we're in in Australia and have been for at least the last decade and probably in the Western world for at least a decade is a season where the tide is going out. Most of the KPIs that you look at from the census or from National Church Life Survey data would have that in Australia, the percentage of people who are active Christians in Australia is gradually diminishing. Probably also the number of people who are active Christians is diminishing. The percentage of people who say they have a Christian faith in Australia is diminishing. There was about um, 10 years ago a study done in Melbourne called All Melbourne Matters where Melbourne metropolitan churches were surveyed and it was found at that time that the equivalent of two average size churches were going out of existence every week. Wow. Now this is research data. The equivalent of two average churches were going out of existence every week. About 4,500 people less in worship at the end of the year compared with the beginning of the year. And I worked out for the number of Christians in Melbourne at that time that if just extrapolate that out in a too simplistic kind of way, within about 50 years, nobody would be going to church in Melbourne now. I don't believe that's going to happen because it's much more complicated than that. But when, you, when you're leading a church or a ministry in a context where the tide is going out, unless you are doing extremely well, you are actually losing ground. And if your sense of value and of identity depends in any way on good KPIs, then you're going to be quite discouraged and actually blame yourself and say the reason why the church is not growing or the church is not thriving or people are not coming to Christ or being baptised is that I'm not a good enough leader. Or a change agent, which is one of the other pressures you identify. Exactly. It's not good to be a, a pastor preacher now. You've got to be a change agent. Yes, yes. And the role of change agent, and again, there's, there's courses, uh, you know, whole courses done on helping people to be wise and timely and to do process and structure for, for change management that actually allows you and helps you to take people with you. And um, the, the, the message doesn't change. The essence of the gospel is the same yesterday, today and forever. But we must 
express it in different ways because we we reach out particularly to younger people if we're trying to express it in the way that was effective say when I was younger it just basically will not work if we think that evangelism today is going to be much more effective if we can just find the next Billy Graham then we're probably not going to be very effective in evangelism within the present context. The next Billy Graham would, I'd pray and hope for somebody who could help people to become Christian in the incredible way that he did, but that kind of mass meeting doesn't seem to be a good communication tool today. So if you are a leader, if you are a pastor, then you are inevitably going to be asked to be and sometimes expected to be a change agent and that is a skill, that is a vocation that you need to be able to do well enough to take people with you. Otherwise, if you don't do it extremely well, if there is an excellence there, people will go. Yeah. Keith, we can talk um, all day and through this whole series of conversations about these kinds of dynamics. And you're very experienced and a great deal of wisdom. But I'd like to know also what's the data showing about the lot of a pastor, um, preacher, leader, minister today? Okay, the data. um, And it's it's difficult sometimes to get data in this area, particularly current data and particularly for Australia so that there's much more data available, say, for America than there is for Australia. And um, one, of the, uh, one of the collections of relatively recent data that I have seen fairly recently is in a little book that Mark Connor has written entitled How to Avoid Burnout. And in the introductory chapter to his um, little book that I find very practical and very helpful in the area of burnout, he gives a summary of relatively recent surveys of how pastors are doing. And one that was a joint, I think it was a joint effort by National Church Life Survey and the Australian Christian research group, Dr. Philip Hughes, um, and it was in a book written by Peter Keldor, indicated that of any four pastors in Australia, in a survey that they did, one would evaluate himself or herself as being in a healthy position. Two would classify themselves as being in uh, an orange zone or a potentially unhealthy position from a um, uh, uh, emotional health point of view and one would say they are in burnout. So 25% in burnout, 50% in an orange zone, 25% in good health. If you go to America and the 
statistics are almost to the point where I think there are, you have to worry about them. But one of the statistics that um, that Mark Connor quotes is that 80% of pastors indicated that they were either in burnout or close to burnout and eight out of ten pastors don't finish their vocational life as a pastor. Now, I have to say, uh, you know, just a, a little heads up to that one, I'm not finishing my vocational life as a pastor either, so I'm not meaning that that's a negative, but what it may mean is that people who are very able as pastors at some stage run out of resources and decide to go to a different ministry because it's not as demanding. So we are today actually losing, and I'm a bit of a hypocrite in even saying this, we are losing people from local church ministry because in an all-round 360 degree, it has a lot of expectations and demands. It's a very difficult context without a sufficient support. Yes, but not impossible. No. And not under and by the power of God. No. So we could we could end this conversation here and make everybody feel very down about the role <laughs> and the lot of the pastor uh, and uh, minister and leader. Yet, there's still this task for the world and for the church. Yes. What would you say to encourage those who are watching this, Keith, now to say, in in some way, shape or form, stick at it. God has something significant for you. I, I would say there are many green shoots and more than green shoots. Um, many very positive things that either are happening or are very close to happening or embryonic in the pipeline that I believe God, is, the season that we are in, we are in a season where there's some um, cutting back, there's some refining. Pruning. There's some pruning happening, but there's a quality developing both in leadership and in discipleship that I believe augurs incredibly well for the next um, the next season where discipleship and leadership will be much more effectively based on character development, discipleship will be an intimate, organic relationship with God through Jesus that changes me from the inside out, allows me to mature. And my straightforward, simple understanding of the most effective definition of and quality of a leader is a leader is a mature disciple. And if you are a mature disciple, you will inevitably be an effective leader. And in the coming conversations, we will open up a path and shine a bright light on a lot of that in the conversations to come. For now, Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.